Greetings, this is Julia Gerlach, Managing Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to the latest episode of the 2019 No-Till Farmer podcast series. Today's program, Building Resilience in Your No-Till Soils, is brought to you by Midwest Biotech. I encourage you to subscribe to the series, which is available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about new episodes when they're released. I'd like to take a moment to thank Midwest Biotech for sponsoring today's episode. Midwest Biotech markets the complete line of Chandler crop products that enhance plant growth and soil health. To improve soil health, farmers need reliable and easy to understand measurements of soil biology, chemistry, and structure. Midwest Biotech recently opened the new Soil Health Lab to provide practical information based on quick and affordable methods, including the Solvita suite of soil health tests. Contact Midwest Biotech to learn how you can manage carbon, nitrogen, and other important resources that contribute to soil health and your bottom line. Visit them at MidwestBioman.com. Jamie Patton is a Senior Outreach Specialist for the Nutrient and Pest Management Program for the University of Wisconsin. A certified professional soil scientist with a PhD in soil science, Jamie's expertise is in soil health, cover crops, and nutrient management. In this episode of the No-Till Farmer podcast, I caught up with Jamie by phone to talk about her favorite subject. She generously shared her insights on sequestering carbon in the soil, the impact microbes, fungi, and organic matter have on the soil biome, evaluating soil structure and compaction, the benefits no-tillers can take advantage of by using cover crops, creating resiliency in the soil, and much more. Jamie, there's been a big emphasis on soil health lately, and a lot of people are talking about the benefits that can be had by making improvements below ground. So what are some of the main benefits that farmers will see by focusing on soil health? Well, I think one of the biggest benefits of improving soil health is improving that soil's resiliency. And what I mean by that is that soil's ability to continue to function and continue to produce when potentially climatic situations are less than ideal. So when we think about growing crops in a drought situation or growing crops when we have excess rain like this year, what we're seeing is those soils are performing much better. So what I mean by that is they're able to supply the water and nutrients to the crops so that we continue to produce in a drought year. And what we see is we're also allowing that water, excess water to drain away. So as we create those aggregates, as we create those pore spaces in a healthy soil, that excess water can drain away and we improve soil strength so we're able to get into the field and be more timely with our operations. So in general, those are some productivity-related um, benefits, but we also know that improving soil health and improving that infiltration rate of water means that we're going to be reducing soil erosion and nutrient movement from our fields. And so that is a, that is a big win for surface and groundwater quality. Now, we hear a lot lately also about reducing greenhouse gases by sequestering carbon in the soil. For the liberal arts majors among us, can you explain how that works? (laughs) I can. It's actually, it's a really amazing process and it's really complicated. So I'm going to do my best to explain it. So when we think about greenhouse gases, so I'm going to talk mostly about carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So that carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is actually utilized by plants. So when the plants photosynthesize, what they do is they're able to take that carbon, combine it with water to produce glucose. So they produce a sugar. The plant then uses either that glucose to produce its own plant material. So the roots, the shoots, the leaves, so on and so forth, or it uses that glucose as energy. And if it uses it as energy, then it sends that carbon dioxide back to the atmosphere. 
But that carbon that's tied up in those plant materials, then when we think about where that can go, that plant may be eaten by an animal. And then that carbon from that plant is transferred to the animal or transferred back to the atmosphere or it's transferred to waste materials, so um, manures. When we look at that, so when we think about tying up carbon in the soil, what we're actually doing is we're taking that carbon dioxide, moving it through a plant. That plant is then either being um, added to the soil directly or it's going through an animal and then we're adding the animal waste back to the soil or we're adding that animal as a residue back to the soil. And that carbon then is deposited in that soil matrix. Then the microbes start to break that down and some of that carbon is sent back to the atmosphere through respiration as they garner energy from feeding on those materials. But some of that carbon stays in the soil and that's what's building our soil organic matter. So it's, that's the simplified version of how we're taking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. We're moving it in through a plant. That plant is then going plants, animals, microbes being directly added back to the soil, building that organic matter, building that soil carbon over time. So the more plant biomass, the more plant activity um, and productivity we have, Theoretically, the more potential organic matter, more carbon we can store in that soil. Wow. It certainly does sound complex. So there's the capturing of the carbon and then, and then keeping it in there is another matter altogether, right? It really is. And so those microbes, when we look at that soil microorganism community within that soil, when we add those plant and animal residues and wastes, to the soil, what they see is food, right? So they're going to be decomposing that organic matter over time um, to get carbon not only for their own bodies, but also energy from that material. And so there's this balance between how much organic matter, how many, how many organic residues are being added versus how much are being consumed in, by those microbes and how much carbon goes back to the atmosphere. We can keep that process somewhat in check in a soil because what oftentimes is limiting to those microbial populations is the amount of oxygen in the soil matrix. So most of the micro, uh, many, I shouldn't say most, many of the organisms within the soil are aerobic, meaning that they need oxygen in order to survive. So in a normal soil situation, oxygen is somewhat limited in the soil. And the reason for that is those microbes are consuming that oxygen, right? And it's starting to be depleted. And the transfer of oxygen from the air we're breathing right now back into the soil or the fusion of that oxygen back into the soil is fairly slow. So when a soil isn't disturbed, um, that, that limiting not oxygen in the soil pores actually keeps that microbial decomposition of that organic matter in check. And so we don't see a lot of organic matter being decomposed, and therefore we get a buildup of that organic matter in the soil. However, when we disrupt that soil, so we introduce oxygen into the system, that was what was lim limiting microbial communities. And so when we introduce that oxygen through tillage, for example, the microbial populations um, increase. We see more decomposition of that soil organic matter and more carbon going back to the atmosphere because those microbial populations are more robust when they have that oxygen introduced into the system. So that's when we talk about how tillage impacts over time organic matter. That's one of the reasons why tillage leads often sometimes to lower organic matter contents is simply we're allowing those microbial populations to flourish with that extra oxygen and they're eating up, per se, that organic matter. And so we've got the microbes and we've got the organic matter. And then how does fungi play into that as well in terms of soil health? 
Well, this is where uh, I will be the first to admit. So we know some about the soil microbial community, but there is much that we need to learn. And so in general, and I'm being very, very simplistic in, in discussing these organisms, we know that those bacteria and those fungi are very important in cycling organic matter through the soil. And what I mean by cycling organic matter, what they're doing as they're decomposing that organic material is releasing nutrients back into the system. And so we're seeing in the research is showing us that oftentimes when we have a bacterial dominated community, so when we have soils where bacteria are more numerous than fungi, we see many of these organic compounds cycling faster. So we're seeing organic matter um, being decomposed faster and a faster release of those nutrients. When we have an and the opposite, when we have a fungal-dominated community where fungi are actually out there in the ecosystem, they tend to be a little slower at decomposition and a little slower at that nutrient release. And so we start to see a buildup of organic matter in those systems just simply because those fungi oftentimes are decomposing really hard to decompose materials such as lignans and celluloses, so on and so forth. And so they, a fungal-dominated community, supposedly is going to build more organic matter um, than one that's dominated bacteria. And I always hate to talk generalizations because obviously I'm the first one to preach that soils are individuals and, and being general about these statements sometimes doesn't hold true. So recently I saw a study that suggested that crop diversity plays a much larger role in storing carbon than we previously believed or knew because of the microbial activity that's created in a diverse system. What are your thoughts on that? So when we look at the, the research, we know that oftentimes diverse plant communities actually end up with increased plant biomass production. So we get more productivity by those plants when they're grown um, in a diverse mix. And so we see an example of that oftentimes in a prairie. So if you go out and you look at a native prairie, there's grasses, there's forbs, um, all sorts of different plant materials out there. They're synergistic in that each different plant is building their bodies a little bit different. So each different plant has different organic compounds within their bodies. And I call them bodies, sorry, I always personify them in their tissues. So each plant has different compounds within their tissues and each plant actually exudes or releases different organic compounds into the soil. So because of that, what we see is when we have diverse mixtures of plants, so when we, for example, in a cover crop mix, I'm, we'll just talk there. So if I have a cereal rye and I have a crimson clover and I have a radish, each one of those plants has a different chemical makeup of their own tissues, but they're also releasing different chemical compounds into the soil. And because of that, we're feeding a diverse microbial population. So one population may prefer one food while another prefers another. And so these diverse mixtures are allowing us to develop a uh, robust uh, microbial community. And because of that, we then see oftentimes a more productive system. So I don't know that we fully understand how all of that works. And, and I know there's a lot of research going on um, with it, but um, diversity is always good. And so whether that be above ground or below ground, and we know those are more productive and my favorite word, more resilient systems as we look at um, those, the changing weather patterns that we do have. Uh, let's stay on cover crops for a minute. There's been a huge increase in integrating cover crops into no-till systems. Tell me some more about the benefits of using cover crops. 
So when I when I think about cover crops in a typical agricultural system, oftentimes we're leaving that soil bare maybe five, six months or more of the year. And because of that, when we talk about those microbial communities, those plants that are living are providing extra sugars into the soil. They're helping to feed those soil microorganisms. So when we don't have plants actively growing in that field or we don't have additional plant residues being added into the soil, sometimes those microbial populations will decrease um, just simply because they don't have a food source. So when we think about how cover crops can impact a microbial population, when we have that active growing root in the soil, it's releasing sugars and it's providing a habitat as well as food to those organisms. So um, the premise of soil health is, is making sure that we have that, that healthy and diverse ecosystem. So that's one way that a cover crop um, can assist us in improving soil health. There's also the physical part of those cover crops. So oftentimes um, when I'm out looking at a soil and looking at a soil profile, I'm talking about how those roots get down into the soil and are helping to create those soil aggregates. So helping to arrange those sand, silt, and clay particles into these heads that then build pore space in the soil so that we have better water infiltration. I'm also talking about how those roots are helping to create channels by which um, the microorganisms or the larger organisms such, such as earthworms um, can utilize as habitat. So that the physical nature of using those cover crops, using that those roots to break up compaction and create aggregation is also an important part of soil health. And last but not least, we can't forget um, the reduction in soil erosion. So making sure that we have a plant cover out there um, in those months of the year when we're not growing a, a cash crop is really important because we know from, from research in, in Wisconsin, um, much of our erosion actually occurs in the spring months when we don't have plant cover. So we're thinking along the lines of maybe April, May, and June. So in, in those times of the year when we don't have a, another crop, a cash crop out there growing, a cover crop can provide that armor to the soil, can help with raindrop impact um, by absorbing that raindrop impact and reducing um, the dislodgement and transport of those soil materials off the field. So we know that they do help, particularly if we have a decent amount of biomass production, they do help dramatically with soil erosion. So we want to have plant out there all the time. Um, can you talk about crop rotations, including cover crops, and how no-tillers can use those to improve soil health? So that's where I think a lot of the research, particularly in Wisconsin, is figuring out how do we adjust, and I always call it a soil health management system, right? How do we change our rotations How to, to not only allow for us to produce the cash crop or forage that we need, but also allow us to create a system by which we can get um, different crops or cover crops into that system, that rotation. So what we're seeing is we have a fairly limited growing season up here. We oftentimes have some challenges getting in a cover crop after a corn or a soybean crop. So there's an opportunity there to look at some different technologies and different strategies for inter potentially interseeding cover crops into that system or even changing our, our varieties that we're planting, maybe a shorter season um, variety of corn or um, a different maturity of bean so that we can get into that system earlier and get a cover crop um, seeded. We're also looking at, at the importance of small grains. So if we can, we can in incorporate potentially, for example, a wheat into a rotation. We know that wheat comes off fairly early, maybe depending on where you're at in the state in July or August. Um, and because of that, that opens up a, a really nice window to get into a really diverse mix of cover crop after that wheat prior to going back into our corn rotation. So 
strategizing. So there's a lot of strategy on how to how to alter not only the crops that we're planting, but the different maturities of the crops that we're planting to facilitate the use of cover crops in a system to get the benefits not only with cover, but also to soil health. So we're going to switch gears a little bit here and just talk a little bit about synthetic fertilizers, herbicides, and pesticides. Is there any general way that you can talk about how they affect the soil? That is a, that's actually a really difficult question to answer. So when we look at fertilizers and we look at pesticides, there is there are so many different compounds that we're using in our agricultural system that it's hard to say how in general each one is going to impact the soil system. We know that some fertilizers, because of their salt index or because of the amount of ammonium that they have in them or their acid producing ability, are going to have um, different effects on the soil microbial community and soil health than other types of fertilizers that may have less, may change the soil chemistry less than, than others. Um, when it comes to pesticides, the same thing holds true. Each of those pesticides, whether we're looking at a fungicide, herbicide, you know, insecticide, each one is going to have a different half-life in the soil. Some of those compounds are detrimental to our microbial communities, and others are looked at as a food source and actually increase some of our microbial activity. So making generalized statements is very difficult, and that's where it's important for producers to do the research and, and to look at each chemical individually and see how that's impacting our soil. What about earthworms in farm soils? Generally, they are thought of as a positive sign, but then I've heard that in forests, they're bad. Can you explain that? I don't really get why they're good for agriculture, but bad for forests. Working in northern Wisconsin like I do, this is this is a hot topic up here, right? No. So when we look at... <laughs> so on that, that beautiful agricultural forest interface. So depending on what audience I'm talking to, I have to talk about our earthworms a little bit differently. So in agricultural situations, we look at earthworms as in general being positive, right? They are creating, they're helping us to um, shred and to increase the surface area of our plant residues. So they're helping to um, make those plant residues and those animal residues more available for decomposition to our microbial communities. So they're very, very good um, at helping with nutrient cycling. We know those earthworm castings, so their waste are high in plant available nutrients, in particular nitrogen. And we know that they have a positive benefit on, on increasing the porosity um, of our soils and helping to increase aggregation. So in agricultural situations, we often use them as a gauge of soil health. You know, how many earthworms do we have per square meter or, you know, per square yard, you know, and, and because they are a good indicator of how healthy our soil is. If the environmental and chemical conditions of that soil are right, we're going to have a good healthy microbial population, excuse me, earthworm population. Um, so here, there in agricultural systems, we use them as a bioindicator. In forest systems, however, um, what we're seeing particularly up here during the last glaciation, um, that, that glaciation would have wiped out our earthworm populations. And from what I've been told and what I understand, any native earthworm population that we would have had um, after glaciation was wiped out by these introduced earthworms um, into our system. So the earthworms that we see now um, in the state of Wisconsin were introduced. They were brought in probably by Europeans that um, knew the benefits and had seen the benefits of earthworms in agricultural systems. So when those earthworms that are non-native to Wisconsin get into our forests, 
they, every benefit that they have in an agricultural situation, helping with that residue decomposition and nutrient release is actually detrimental. So when we look at a forest system, that system doesn't need nutrients in quite the amount that our agricultural systems do. And because of that, in a natural ecosystem, the residue, so that those, that dead leaf and, and needle layer would decompose fairly slowly, would release nutrients fairly slowly, and then that nutrient would be taken up by the plants. And so it was that slow decomposition rate was a way to preserve nutrients in that natural system. When we introduce earthworms into a forest, what they do is they hasten, they quicken that decomposition process, and we start to see that duff layer, that leaf layer um, disappear more quickly than it should. We get nutrient release more quickly than it should, and therefore we get nutrient loss out of that forest. In addition, the way in which some of those earthworms feed, they actually pull their residue and what their food source under the soil. And there's also instances of where those earthworms are pulling the regen, the baby trees, the new, the newly developed, the newly uh, sprouted trees down into the ground and feeding on them. And so because of that, we're getting less regeneration, natural regeneration of that forest. So it really does depend upon what kind of ecosystem that you're looking at. Is it an agro-ecosystem or is it a forest ecosystem? And, and we have to adjust our thinking accordingly. We'll come back to Jamie in a moment, but I want to take time once again to thank our sponsor, Midwest Biotech, for supporting today's episode. Midwest Biotech markets the complete line of Chandler crop products that enhance plant growth and soil health. To improve soil health, farmers need reliable and easy to understand measurements of soil biology, chemistry, and structure. Midwest Biotech recently opened the new Soil Health Lab to provide practical information based on quick and affordable methods, including the Solvita suite of soil health tests. Contact Midwest Biotech to learn how you can manage carbon, nitrogen, and other important resources that contribute to soil health and your bottom line. Visit them at MidwestBioMan.com. Now let's get back to soil scientist, Jamie Patton. So Jamie, when I met you, you were shoulder high in a soil pit in Waterford, Wisconsin. It was a 17-year no-till field, and you seemed pretty impressed with the condition. What's the first thing you look at when you're in a soil pit, and what did you see in particular that was interesting to you in that particular case? Well, the first thing I see is the first thing everyone sees, right, is that difference in color as you look in that soil profile. So um, when I was in that pit, I always look for, and when I get into a, a soil pit, what I look for is how dark is that surface layer and how thick is that surface layer? So we know that a horizon or that topsoil is really important to us for crop growth in that it contains many of the plant roots as well as the nutrients and water holding capacity for that soil. So when I get into a pit and I see a nice dark soil, the darker the soil, the higher the, typically the higher the organic matter. When I see a nice dark soil and I see a nice thick A horizon or a nice thick dark layer on the soil surface, I get excited because oftentimes that indicates that that soil is very healthy and has the potential to be very productive. I also look at soil structure. And soil structure is the way in which the sand, silt, and clay grains aggregate themselves to create those aggregates. So, and why that's important to me is oftentimes we talk about cookie crumb structure or cottage cheese structure, right? In soil science terms, that would be granular structure. So that's those, those aggregates that are being spheres, right? They're being round. And why that is so exciting to us is that round things don't pack very well together. So I always use the analogy is how well do inflated basketballs pack in a box? 
Well, they don't pack very well. You end up with a lot of space in between those basketballs. And that's what we like to see in soils is those round aggregates because they don't pack together very well. I end up with a lot of pore space and that pore space allows for water and air movement into the soil and it also allows for, for root growth. So when I jump into a soil pit, I look to see what kind of structure I have and what is its shape? Is it round? Is it flat like a plate? Is it a block? I like round better than I like plates because obviously plates stack on top of each other very easily and I end up with less pore space. I like round better than blocks because blocks tend to pack together very well. And I also look at the size, right? I would prefer that aggregation oftentimes to be smaller because I end up with better pore space that way. So color structure is what I look at. And I also, when I'm talking the soil health field day, I look at how many earthworms do I see? How many roots do I see? Are those roots growing straight down? Um, or are they growing sideways? Do they, they hit a layer of compaction? Um, you know, are they, are they robust? Are they diseased? Um, you know, how is the biology, whether that be the plant or the larger critters that I can see, how are they interacting with that soil matrix? And, and is it good for them or is it not? The answer to this next one may just be no, but is there any such thing as a typical no-till soil pit versus a typical tilled soil pit? So no, it's it's really hard to general. No, it's really hard to generalize because, you know, particularly that's the wonderful thing about working in the state is our soils are so diverse. And so I have different. I you know I work with sands one days and clays the other days where I have really heavy soils, but. I mean, if I had to generalize, you know, making some general statements and they don't always hold true, oftentimes I see more organic matter. I see darker soils in no-tilled soils. Um, oftentimes I see um, lighter colored soils in those tilled soils. And, and it, it's really hard to generalize because in the tilled soils, I often see a plow pan. So I see that compaction um, down below the depth of tillage. But unfortunately, I can still see those oftentimes in that no-till field because once we get that compaction at depth, it takes a long time for biology to get rid of it. So I may still see a plow pan in a no-tilled field, but, but what I'm looking for and what I usually talk us through is that in that the difference would be in that no-tilled field, if it's been in particularly long-term no-till, I start to see that biology helping to break up that plow pan. I see those earthworms moving through. I see those roots breaking through, helping to um, lessen the impact of compaction on that soil pit. So it's really hard to make generalizations, which is a good thing, right? That keeps me in a job. I get to jump in soil pits all the time and talk my way through them. Right. So since you brought it up, let's talk about compaction some more. Um, you know, we had a lot of rain in a lot of areas this spring, and then a lot of guys had to get into the fields in less than ideal conditions. They might be worried that they've done some damage to their fields. Uh, so how should they go about evaluating whether or not they have a problem? That's where and it seems very, very simple, but a shovel is an extremely valuable tool when we're going out and we're evaluating soil health and we're evaluating soil compaction. So the first thing I usually do um, with a producer is, is we go out and we start to walk through that field and we start to dig holes and we start to look to see, you know, do I, what kind of structure do I have, right? We talked about those, that granular structure. Is my, is my, are my aggregates round or are they flat? You know, as we as we manipulate the soil, whether we walk on it, we drive on it, we till it, whatever we may do to it, oftentimes those spheres, those round balls, 
get compacted and then they get squished into blocks or plates. So just by looking at that soil structure, um, we start to see how much compaction we have. And I, and I like to get, you know, down a good two foot. I guess I'm probably being aggressive at digging holes, but I like to see what's down below, you know, to see because compaction can occur at the soil surface, but it also can compact um, at depth. And so I want to know what kind of what kind of layers I'm potential layers I'm dealing with in the soil. Um, so we can use a shovel, or oftentimes many many of us will use what's called a penetrometer. Basically, it's um, a probe with a sharp point on the end, and it measures penetration resistance. Basically, it measures how much power we need to put on that on that sharp point to push it down through the soil layers. So it takes obviously more power or more strength or more effort to push that rod through a compacted soil than it does a non-compacted soil. And so we can use that probe, that, that, uh, that rod, to start to gauge if or where, where we have soil compaction, um, how deep it is, and how thick it is. So there's many ways we can go out to look at compaction. And oftentimes we can see it in our, our crops are telling us, right? We get that shorter growth. We get nutrient deficiencies. Um, we just see overall poor vigor in those plants in areas where we have compaction. And so once they figure out that they do have some compaction issues, what are you recommending that they do? This is where it gets really tricky again. So it really depends upon where that compaction is at. And so what we're seeing in the last few years, we've had tremendous rains and we've, we've been in the fields under unideal conditions. And so we have a lot of surface compaction. And so for that, depending upon what kind of management system a producer may have, we may be looking at utilizing cover crops to break up some of that surface compaction. Whether Mother Nature can help us out too. So if, if that compaction is concentrated at the soil surface, you know, we get these nice cold winters, right? So some freeze-thaw action in the first couple inches of the soil can help us break up that compaction. If that compaction is lower down in the profile, then what we're going to be looking at is as some cover crop species, and this is where working with our agronomists and our local technical advisors, we can start to look at cover crop mixes that have a, a wide array of root architectures. So getting plants that have that deep, strong tap root to break through some of that, that subsurface compaction and using some of those fibrous root systems that, that we see in the grasses to help to re-aggregate some of those surfaces. So there's always the option and, and as a last resort if we need it, if particularly if that compaction is lower down in the soil profile, um, as a last resort, if we know we're getting significant yield reductions due to a plow pan, there are some instances where we may want to consider um, deep ripping or, or deep tillage, but at least in my opinion, that those are going to be few and far between. And if we do use that operation, then we're going to follow it right up with a, with a cover crop because once we create those fracture planes at depth, then I want to root down there to, to hold those fracture planes open, maintain those pore spaces that we created, and continue to rebuild that aggregation in the soil surface. So there's no one-size-fits-all when we look at compaction. It really does depend upon that farmer's management system. So do I have manure? Do I, what kind of rotation do I have? What kind of equipment do I have? You know, and what kind of yield reductions am I potentially seeing because of that compaction? 
And speaking of cover crops with the deep taproot, do you have any favorites, tillage radish or something else? I was going to say tillage radishes are a common one used by many producers. Um, when we, we were out in the soil pit, you and I were both uh, oogling over that beautiful taproot system that we saw on that sunflower, right? And so it had a, a nice sturdy taproot. Um, a lot of our brassica species, so when we look at the the rapeseeds, the, the kales, turnips, things along those lines also have a taproot system. But anytime we can get a root in there to help to break up that compaction, it's a good thing. So sometimes our legumes have a really nice, strong, deep root system that can help us break up some of that, that lower surface compaction. And when you were in that soil pit on the Beck farm, you were pointing out some different compaction spots and you didn't say they shouldn't worry about the compaction, but you were not too concerned about it. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure, and I, I have a different perspective than probably most because I I've seen probably the best and the worst of the compaction out there because of because of being able to get into a lot of different soil pits. So the pit that we were looking at, and as you mentioned, was a 17-year no-till. Um, and what we were seeing, and as I was pointing out, is, is we had some really fine platy structure at the soil surface, but it was pretty much concentrated within the top inch or two of the soil. And so as we chatted about how those root systems, and they had a 15-way cover crop mix in there, we were discussing how we could see those roots of those cover crops growing laterally, growing sideways, helping to break up some of those compaction, growing down through those, those plates. And we also saw amazing amounts of earthworms that were also helping to break up that little bit of platy structure. So I, I wasn't, you know, it's, is it impacting um, water infiltration? Yes. Is it impacting um, root growth and plant productivity? Maybe so. Um, but those impacts were, were somewhat minor in that particular soil. And I fully expect that as they continue on with their no-till and their cover crops and with the assistance of some freeze thaw yet this winter, that that compaction will continue to alleviate itself quickly over time. If you don't mind, could you back up just a little bit? You were talking about aggregates, and this is something that I have not seen personally in the field, but how do you actually go about identifying what your aggregate structure looks like? I mean, do you take a clump of soil <laughs> and crush it, or, or what do you do? Well, each one of us has a has a different um, approach to this, and so um, this is where me and my uh, my trusty soil knife. So she's been with me for a good almost twenty years now. Um, I use I use a knife, right? And so I'm, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to get to the natural fabric of the soil. So I I want that soil to break out how it would naturally. So oftentimes I insert that that knife in sideways and you saw me do this and just kind of pop some of that soil out. So rather than force it out of the soil pit, I allow that soil to pop out naturally. And then I just gently apply, once I get that, it's usually a, a fairly large clump, and then I just gently apply pressure to it. And I watch to see how that soil naturally splits apart. And in a well-developed soil, those soil aggregates typically will be of similar size and similar shape. So I take out several clumps of soil and I just gently press on them or I press on them until they naturally break apart. And then I look at that soil structure. I see how large is it um, and what is its general shape. And so soil scientists get really uh, really particular about what those shapes are called. For most of us, we can just talk about, you know, granular structure or spherical structure, plates and blocks. And so I can kind of categorize it that way and knowing what its shape is, then I can make some, I can make some guesses as to how water and air and roots and biology are, are interacting with that soil. So 
if you continue to break it down, it's also important, you know, once I get it to break apart the first time, then I'll press on it again to see what, so that first press will be the primary structure, but there's also secondary structure. So I press it again and see what other shapes it continues to make. So it's really hard to explain through an interview like this, but um, it's better to see it in person, but it's really how that soil naturally wants to break apart. Gotcha. Well, you made that come alive for me, so I get it. Now. <laughs> if only you could see my hand gestures, this would make so much more sense. <laughs> well, Jamie, this has been fantastic. I really appreciate it. Um, do you have any final thoughts for our no-tillers out there? Anything that they should be thinking about in terms of soil health? My always general talk to to producers is to you know your soils better than anyone, um, and so there is no one size fits all to improving soil health on our landscape. So I always in encourage everyone to talk to talk to their neighbors, talk to their technical service providers, and what I mean by that is talk to your agronomist, talk to your NRCS personnel, your land conservation, talk to the extension agent, and see what systems are working. So what cover when I mean system, what kind of tillage, what kind of fertility schemes, what kind of cover crops and cover crop planting methods, manure applications are working for your region and to work with those, those specialists in identifying a system that will work for you. These are really truly individualized plans. So there is no one size fits all. And with some good planning and good research and talking through some of the, uh, the complexities and intricacies of a plan, there is going to be a soil health management system that will work for most, if not every single farmer out there. Thanks to Jamie Patton for her insights into soil health and how no-tillers can create resilience in their systems. To listen to more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies, please visit notillfarmer.com forward slash podcasts. Once again, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Midwest Biotech, for helping to make this no-till podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jakerlock at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. If you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. You can also keep up on the latest no-till farming news by registering online for our No-Till Insider daily and weekly updates and Dryland No-Tiller e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at No-Till Farmer with Farmer spelled F-A-R-M-R -R, and our No-Till Farmer Facebook page. For our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Managing Editor Julia Gerlach. Thank you for listening.